Welcome to Friendo Podcast, hosted by me, Amanda Muse. As a YouTuber, I've shared my life online for the last eight years, and now I'm excited to learn about you. Friendo celebrates people and their stories, from interesting jobs to unique passions and curious life skills that the world should hear about. Community is everything. Let's do this. What is your origin story? You know the one. Your birth date, your parents, their ages. Are they your biological parents or perhaps you were adopted? What about siblings? How many of those? Family traditions? Cultural experiences? Those details, your start in life, they don't really shift. They do, however, impact you and how you identify and what connects you to your story. It's amazing how we can take these seemingly minor details for granted. We piece together our lives as we get older, connecting to our history and building a future. But what if those details aren't shared with you? What then? My friendo guest today is Garion Sparks Austin, a registered social worker and psychotherapist in Milton, Ontario. She's also a single mother of two and a Korean adoptee. Today, Garion shares her story with us about her start in life, how she came to grow up in Canada, along with her thoughts on helping families through their adoption journeys. At the end of the episode, Dean and I explore our feelings about the topic and share stories of our time overseas. As a note, what's been happening around the world toward members of the Asian community is devastating. The most recent wave of anti-Asian rhetoric and violence amplified by COVID-19 is the latest chapter in a long and tortured history. We also know that Asian women have and continue to disproportionately experience anti-Asian racism and violence. To my Asian community members, we stand by you. In the episode, I make reference to the Asian American community. However, I misspoke and intended to say Asian community. Thanks for your understanding. Welcome to the podcast, Garyan. Hi, Amanda. So before we, you know, really dive into this, maybe you could tell me a little bit about who you are, and then we can jump into why you reached out to me today for your story. Absolutely. Um, well, my name's Garyan. It's often um, mispronounced, but it's pretty simple. It's like Marion, but with a G. Um for me, I think that I have multiple different um, kind of ways to identify myself. For one, I'm Korean. I was born back in the early 80s in South Korea. So I identify as a Korean adoptee. I'm also a mom and a single mother of two beautiful children. Um, I have a boy who's almost 12 and then a daughter who is almost seven. Um, I'm also a registered social worker, psychotherapist, and I created my own um, kind of therapeutic practice last year. And obviously the pandemic has kind of helped to expediate the expansion of that practice. Um, So in one sense, I'm totally grateful for that. But the other, I'm so mindful of kind of the overall global experience that we're going through. Oh, it is a time, isn't it? Like, I mean, amazing that people can still connect with their therapists and talk to people, you know, through video calls, but yeah, it's something, it is something. So you mentioned at the top that you were, you're an adoptee from Korea. Tell me a little bit about this story. How, how did this like adopted left on a doorstep? What? Yeah, I mean, so the story goes that, you know, in and around April of 1983, back in Seoul in South Korea, um, somebody, something left me in a basket on a doorstep. Uh, Luckily, I was found and then I was placed in an orphanage where I stayed for a few months. And eventually I was adopted by my family. some people would say my adopted family, 
for me, for simplicity and just kind of the reality of it, it's my family. And they they lived in Canada. And so I flew on over with my dad and here I am. Wow. So how long did you stay um, in the orphanage for? It was a few months and it was also delayed. So when my dad went over, he thought that he would only be there for about a week or so. And then he ended up having to stay for a couple more, I think an extra week mm-hmm. before we were allowed to fly home. Wow. What, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to think about the eighties, you know, being a baby from the eighties too. like, how did they even find out about this adoption? Like they obviously went through an adoption agency here in Canada one thing that you mentioned is that, so you don't know, so you don't know anything about your birth family. No, but you know what I can share with you. So I, I recently just did a DNA test and it was something that I've always kind of contemplated. And, you know, when you're younger and you go through this whole, who am I? where did I come from? What do I stand for? Kind of searching for your identity phase. And I would always kind of like conjure up these kind of fantasy ideas about who my birth family could be. And so, you know, there was always kind of that mystery, like, you know, what if you're part, um, you know, Japanese, or maybe you're, you have family in Hawaii or you're like part Russian. I don't know. Right. I had no idea. So I hummed and hawed about doing a DNA test. And then I was like, you know what? Why not? Why not find out? Well, it it was a bit anticlimactic, the results, because I'm 99.7% South Korean. There's nothing else. Like, what is that? I was hoping that there would be something kind of like out of there, you know, something different. Nope. That's very like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) It's so cut and dry. And then the other thing too, is that I am, what is it? 99% more Neanderthal than like most of the customers of this DNA testing facility. So that means that like I have DNA that goes back like, wow forever ago. So I'm like an OG. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That is so neat. My brother took one of these tests and I was like, well, just show me the results. I'm sure we're same C's. It's fine. Um, and it was like what you'd expect a little European, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but like, I feel like they couldn't say a hundred just because there's probably like legalities behind saying (laughs) right. Like just a little variation here or there, you know, it's interesting you bring up that test because over the last few years, I'm somewhat fascinated, very intrigued by the stories that come from people discovering more about where they come from. So I can think of, you know, there's a whole podcast called Family Secrets, which honestly was rooted from the fact that a woman, she's a writer and she always felt like there was something in her life, like an untold story. She didn't know what it was. She didn't know where it came from. Well, when after her father passed away, she was like in her fifties, she realized her dad was not her dad and they used it. So anyway, like wow. those stories. Yeah. And so yeah. from that, she's also, you know, I feel like there's all these stories that come from. So whether you're, you know, you don't, your mom's not really your mom or, um, you were adopted, didn't know it. Um, yes that kind of stuff. Cause maybe it wasn't so visually obvious. Um, yeah. but the, the kind of like the theme through all of these stories is there's something missing. And then when they do figure out the story, then there's this grieving of the loss of like, you know, you said you created this fantastical storyline about what could it be. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you're losing perhaps your, you know, you don't have that cultural connection, that heritage, that family story. So I'm curious, you know, we kind of laughed about that fantastical part of it, but there's got to be a truth that like growing up, how did you feel? Like I have so many questions, but the first one is, did you know you were adopted? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, at what age did you find that out? Was it always part of your story and how that kind of showed up for you? It's so interesting. Cause I, from what I can recall, I always knew, right? Like I just knew there, like clearly my family is 
Canadian, Caucasian, we look nothing alike. And it's not like it was a recessive gene that I just kind of popped out of my mom and I was Asian, right? Like the reality is there. There's a stark difference. So from what I can remember in my memory box, I've always known. However, it has shown up in times of my life where it's been questionable. My mom tells me this story about my first day of kindergarten. And I grew up in Halton, like in Milton, small town, used to be like a traditional kind of farming community and predominantly very Caucasian. I went to school and my mom picked me up at the end of the day and she said, I was just like bawling. She's like, whoa, could it have been that bad? Like I have two older brothers who, you know, is pumped for school, so excited. And then here I am just bawling at the end of the day. (laughs) So she's like, well, what's wrong? They They said that you're not my mom. So then I think we had been asked to do this exercise to describe ourselves. And I described my mom. My mom at the time, I think was like, you know, well, she's Caucasian. She always has been, always will be. But she also had like light blonde hair, like cute Bob, you know. Uh, So didn't quite look like me. And people were like, who's that lady? Like, it's my mom. But, you know. Back in the early 80s, there wasn't a lot of exposure to difference, to international adoption, at least not in our direct community. So that, um, I think, was tough, but people also accepted it. But there may not have been much conversation about it. And I think that that can be hard. Um Especially growing up in a different generation. Now, I think people are more open to talking about it. Whereas back in the day in the 70s and the 80s, even maybe the 60s, people didn't necessarily talk about Johnny who was adopted. It was just Johnny, you know? Like they didn't, you didn't talk about, not that it's a problem, but you didn't talk about your differences. You didn't talk about problems. You were like, that is not things, that's not for discussion around the table or, you know, like that kind of thing. And it wasn't, like in your face now, or whether you want to learn or not, you're learning all the time when you're online, right? Mm. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that that was probably the most prominent from when I was in elementary school. Did it show up differently throughout? I think that I took it really hard because as I grew up, there still wasn't a lot of likeness to me. There might have been like a handful of Asian families or not anybody that we really hung out with, Um, not anybody that I could talk to or ask questions about. And we didn't have the internet where I could just Google something and have like a floodgate of information at my fingertips. Like I would have had to go to the library to look it up in the encyclopedia, (laughs) right? Initially. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely different. There wasn't as much accessibility to information. uh, And so that was hard. And I think from the eighties to now, we've started to definitely have more hard and more open conversations, like you said, about difference. I, um, I find even things like having people to look up to you know, mm-hmm. having women who I'm realizing now, of course, but more so in the last few years, how important it is for people just to have likeness that, like you said, the likeness you look, Oh, that's like me. Like I fit in this, this big world. Where's my piece, you know? Uh, and how important that is for young people as they're going through all their stages. Um, I know, I know a story that's popping up for me. It's not my story, but someone near and dear to me who, uh, you know, biological mom, but different dad. So her, her birth father is not her, her dad. And when she was a kid, like she didn't know that her skin was a different color. She just didn't see it. Right. Right. Um, and it's really fascinating how our minds do that. Like you just assume I'm part of this gang here. Like this is who I look like. And that's that. Uh, and you don't see all the differences. I'm curious, like, 
it's just such a curious thing how our minds work. How sad you must have felt for someone to say that's not your mom. Like mm-hmm. what? But then it would show up in different ways too. So one of my best friends, um, we've been best friends since like we were super young. She's blonde. She probably looks more like my family than obviously me. And I remember, you know, in high school, we'd go to say like my mom's work function or something. And they would go to her and say, oh, you must be Garyan. It's so nice to meet you. And I'm like, no, that's me. And they'd go, oh, okay. Right. It's like, wow. I mean, that is awkward. And then I even would get with my brothers. Apparently they're very good looking guys. So, but we would go out and people would be like, oh, is this your new girlfriend? I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, no, (laughs) no, I am their sister. And then people would even ask me, like my girlfriends would be like, your brothers are pretty hot. Would you ever date them? Like, I'm like, weird. Right. And they're like, well, like if you weren't related, I'm like, no, because I can't separate that. Like, just because we don't look like each other. We've been raised as a family unit. And like, I totally view them as my siblings. There's no weird funkiness going on here. <laughs> like, I don't get it. But people will ask these bizarre questions and be like, do you think he's hot? I'm like, do you think your brother's hot? <laughs> and there's Same like science. Thing. What is it? There's some science behind that. I was, it's like, the, we, like when you're raised together, there's like odors of your siblings that your body detects and is like, that is gross. <laughs> Exactly. And they had odors growing up for sure. (laughs) Like there's no way. Oh my God. So, okay. So you're, how many siblings do you have? I have two older brothers. Now are those also adopted boys or are those? Okay. No. So that's an interesting layer too, you know, coming into the family, being part of a family as the adopted is the adopted one. It's like the chosen one. Um, did that ever come to play? Like, obviously we're not putting people on blast, but looking back, did you ever feel other <laughs> growing up? Um, I think that like in my younger years, for sure, there is no difference. I think come high school for sure. Cause one of my brothers is a bit older. He's about seven years older, I think. And then I have another one that is a year older. And so that dynamic can be hard with any sibling because if you're in certain groups and you know, you'll find that friend groups will overlap at times and your friends date this person and then you don't like that person and you're not allowed to talk to this person or whatever kind of high school dynamic it is. So I think that there was some challenge in that. Um, especially going to a smaller high school, not having like a lot of different variation or even exposure to different life experiences. I think our high school pretty much for the most part, all kind of grew up somewhat together. Um, So that was a bit of a challenge then, but I do remember, and I hope my brother doesn't get upset at this story, but we were driving home from a Christmas party. I was driving home. He was not driving home. So I was driving home and he looks over at me and he goes, you're Asian. And I look at him like, been Asian my whole life. (laughs) Like you're just figuring this out. And he says, no, no. Like, I know that you're Asian and you're Korean. Like you've always been that way. But like, I don't see you as that. I see you as my sister. But then he said that he's always been asked, like, is it weird having a sister this Asian? I don't know. So it's a very interesting. Interesting. I find that so curious too. Like even from him, he's like, he almost had to like, look at you in a different light to be like, oh, I guess you are like different, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah. Like how, or what people are exposed to. I feel like all that keeps kind of rushing through my head is how lucky people are today to, I mean, to be able to, to finish my thought, to be able to like go on Instagram, just as an example and filter out whatever they don't want to see 
isolate who they do, if they feel like they don't fit in from gender to identity to whatever, they can find their group of people because you are so fortunate to have had like a loving family to support you and like grow up with. Um, because, and maybe not everyone would have that kind of experience and to feel so lonely, feeling different. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard because people don't know how to acknowledge that difference, right? It's like, do I or don't I? And that can be challenging, right? Especially in the times that we're seeing now, especially in the States, like with a lot of the, you know, the Asian population being targeted by hate, um, it's tough. So do I acknowledge that, especially because I'm not in, in that group? Is it okay? And is it safe to acknowledge that? I think that people don't know how to do that, but they won't necessarily have that conversation to say like, hey, how do you want to address this? People just don't ask the questions instead. Absolutely. You know, we have some adopt adopted children in our family. And one of the things that I love to see is that my aunt, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but she's always taking time to educate herself on how to best support the kids. Um, mm-hmm. Because one thing she was saying is like, no matter what a child who's gone through an adoption has experienced the trauma of losing their birth family. And Mm -hmm. those feelings might show up in ways you don't expect, or maybe there's symptoms that you don't even realize is related to that. And so she's constantly educating herself on that. Also, how awesome that that these tools are even available to her now. I'm just curious, like, did your parents go through anything that kind of prepared them for being adopted parents? I know that they had looked like being presented with other children before they adopted me. So they did go through their own kind of decision-making process and what they felt would be kind of most fitting in a time where, again, like we said before, difference doesn't always work out. I don't know if there was as much support for them, especially during my teenage years, because it really kind of showed up then. I don't know if they had accessibility to kind of ideas or tools that is available now, or even acknowledgement. Like, so for me, I think that you said adoptees will often grieve the loss of the family that they never had. And that totally resonates with me. And I think that there's almost like this inherited abandonment wound like legit from my birth or shortly thereafter that's the word I was looking for that's the big word yeah yeah huge and you don't even have to be adopted to have that kind of a wound for sure but I, I think it 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 is there for adoptees who don't have their story they don't have that information And even if they do have that information, they still are allowed to go through that grief process. Because just because you have words on paper doesn't mean that it informs or takes away from your emotional experience to kind of metabolize that part of your story. Um, For me, I didn't have that word and I didn't know what it was for so long. And so that process, I think, has like it's shown up in my intimate relationships, right? Like, and how I chose to have intimate relationships as a young lady, (laughs) sometimes not making the best choices, Um, you know. And so, really doing that work to figuring it out and to acknowledge it, and almost being conscious of it still to this day to say like, Ooh, is that a trigger for me? Is that showing up? Like, okay, that's, you know, my wound kind of trying to surface again, but now at least I can name it. I have strategies to deal with it. And I also know that I can talk about it. Those are big things. Huge. And it's so important. And even, you know, in talking with some of my friends and hearing their stories, they're not similar, 
but also kind of normalizing that that abandonment wound and how it shows up in different ways for people in their lives. It's so important. And that has been so helpful for me too. You mentioned having tools, knowing how to name it. Like these things are not just something like you're like, whoop, turn 21 and you figured it out. Like what, how did you get there to, to figure that part out? Uh, a lot of trial and error. <laughs> yeah. Um, bless my parents. Um, yeah, it like it's shown up in some wild, you know, maybe not best informed decisions in my life, but nothing like terrible. Like I was never arrested or anything like that, but I did feel like rebellious at times. And I felt like I knew what I was doing. Um, but I really didn't. And I really was just really trying to grasp onto like, who am I? Going to therapy was huge for me. Um, talking about it and looking at it from a different vantage point and maybe even a few different vantage points, right? And learning about even internalized racism and how that's shown up in my experiences. Um, yeah, I, I think therapy was huge. And then also choosing to continue to engage in self-development. I mean, I have my professional development too that I do. And sometimes it kind of weaves back and forth and, you know, helps me, but it also helps me in my professional life too. Um, so that's been huge. And just networking, connecting with other people. And that's kind of the fuel for my fire is that, okay, great. Like I've done so much learning. I want to continue to learn, but I also want to be able to have impact or help others discover that um, as we kind of journey through life. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about. I can just, <laughs> I mean, even just the part you mentioned internalized racism, but then just the racism. I wasn't even sure if we were going to be able to talk about that, if it would be too much for this one show, um, this one episode, but there is so much going on in the news right now. And, you know, I can't help but think about you as a young girl growing up, you know, how that, even just that element about what being Asian means or meant at that time and how that impacted you and then not having an Asian family to go home to. Mm -hmm. That is just, I wouldn't, I will never understand that as a white woman. Right. Mm. Right. And I think like, if there were any young experience of racism, they don't stick out in my mind for sure. And I think like, had it been at school, like I would hope that the teacher would have said like, Hey, Johnny, that wasn't very nice. I think that like, I have moments in my life where it was blatant, just mm. blatant racism. And people would say, I can't believe that happened in our town. I'm like, well, I would like you to believe it because it was real and it wasn't very nice. And I think that, you know, some people are like, well, racism isn't as bad in Canada or it doesn't happen. Well, I don't know, but, you know, some people who are kind of, not a different skin tone, different color, different race, ethnicity. Sure, they may not get the experience. I don't know. I but feel like I that, that statement is very much like, okay, your privilege is showing. Like, you did not experience it. Therefore, it doesn't happen. Like, yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Sometimes I know a lot of, I mean, I've had conversations like that too over the years where friends of mine of, you know, having lived in a different place in a different co country, different culture and going like, Oh, I see it now. You know, now that I'm looking at it through a different lens, I see how racism is working. And even then it was just the ice, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Um, big time. Mm. Something that is coming to me right now is like, I'm, I'm basing this off of an episode, of course, that I listened to another great podcast. I'm just a podcast addict, but um, a woman's story who had been adopted, I believe it was from Korea as well, actually, um, similar kind of thing where the story wasn't there. So, you know, she doesn't know her, her start, just like you. Um, I can, I can only imagine that it's, it's hard because it would be nice to like have a, you know, a stake in the ground. This is the story. And then you could 
process it and kind of move on. Um, and she had similar lovely family, but then when she became a mom, it was quite triggering because you sort of, or actually any mother, really, I find you look at your parents in a completely different way. Cause you're like, Oh, yeah. I'm on the other side of the curtain. Now I kind of, <laughs> I kind of get it. Did, was that a, an interesting transition for you when you became a mom? So it's funny that you asked that because I went back to Korea. Um, I went back to Korea. It must've been in 2008. Um, and it was something that I had always wanted to do. So I went back with my then husband. Um, we went for just over two weeks and we stayed at a hostel for Korean adoptees. It was lovely. Um, very much like a culture shock for me. I don't, I had read all the books, you know, looked up as much information. I even went to church a Korean church, like locally so that I could just immerse myself a little bit more, try to get used to the language, learn a little bit, but I wasn't very successful. Um, it was a culture shock for sure. Beautiful. Um, I got to learn more about kind of the politics behind Korean adopt uh, adoption. Um, and I even got to go to the orphanage that I had been adopted from. Wow. Yes. And that, it wasn't the exact location. I didn't go to the doorstep. For some reason, I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. In hindsight, I was like, why didn't I go? I should have just gone to see if it was there. At the time, it didn't, it didn't have meaning to me. And I don't know if it still does, to be honest. Like, it would be a great Instagram post for sure. Right. 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 Let's be honest. Honestly. Yes. Um, But I did get to go to the orphanage there and it was kind of sad still. Mm. Like rows of little babies that just needed that nurturing. And I was like, I will take all of these. I want all these babies. It was so sad. Um, I couldn't understand it. I don't think that they wanted to help me understand it or to talk about, um, the kind of policies that they had at the time. So that was an interesting part of the journey. It was so beautiful though, to be able to explore, you know, part of where I was, but also confusing. So my husband at the time, because we're divorced, but he is um, Caucasian with a Scottish background, freckled, orangey brown hair. Um, I think at the time he even had a buzz cut. So white in contrast to me. I was married, had wedding bands on, all that kind of stuff. And it was still hard because we were, I remember being in the subway and this woman came up, this elderly woman who was Asian, Korean, I'm assuming. And she just made like that, that horking sound. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then she. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. At you. Uh-huh. And I was like, am I like my then husband and I just kind of looked at each other like, and and then she like yelled at me luckily I didn't pick up enough of the language to even have a clue what she was saying like that was probably a saving grace and and then I was just like what just happened I didn't get it so then when we went back to the hospital I said listen like this strangest thing just happened like I don't know like my body parts weren't exposed like I feel like I was being respectful this woman just randomly came up and did this to me and they said, well, because they think that you're with him and he's not your husband. They think that you're doing like inappropriate things or that he's an American. And so it goes back to like old roots, mm-hmm. old history and old assumptions. And that I think for me then though was tough because talking about identity and I'm totally digressing from parenting, but about identity, that's where it hit me. I was like, what the heck? I was born in this country that didn't make space for me at the time because of whatever, um, you know, cultural expectations, norms, values, 
the political system, financial system, whatever. It didn't have space for me. And then there still didn't feel like there was space for me. Mm. And that was tough. But I also feel like from talking to some of the Koreans that I've been able to meet through my lifetime, it's that there is that kind of generational hierarchy. And that does happen amongst cultures, especially if there's people who have uh, left their, their country of origin and moved on, then there's kind of like this, it's not really uh, documented, but there's this unsaid hierarchy of people. And I'm just not, kind of registering anywhere near the top. And I think that is tough. I don't have a birth certificate. Oh, wow. Right? So people will always say, where's your birth certificate? And and I had issues with that before. I said, well, I never got one. So I have a citizenship card. And that is my original kind of ID. Aside from my adoption paperwork, that's it. Like your Canadian citizenship card. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Forgive my ignorance, but you know, is it a type of thing in Korea? I don't know where little girls, like baby girls weren't wanted. Was that a similar thing? I don't want to speak falsely represent kind of other people's motivations. I think that for sure there would have been a draw to have a boy because boys carry on that family lineage. And I feel like a lot of the Asian cultures really do value their family lineage and heritage. And so that could have possibly been motivating, um, you know, to leave a child. I think that also when I went back, there was still a combination of boy babies Mm. and girl babies but also a lot of children with special needs and that's I think the hardest part um if you ever see the Dropbox, have you seen it no oh my Amanda okay you're gonna watch it and then you're gonna cry and then you're gonna call (laughs) me and then we'll talk about it okay oh it is heart-wrenching and like I have this dream of going back to Korea to go to see these people that created the Dropbox because for a while they were finding babies in dumpsters in alleys they were and and, right like devastating it's not like here where you know most people say hey I can't do this or you know they leave it at least in an accessible place so that was hard so there was this pastor that um, would take in babies or young children, mostly babies, I think, so much so that he created a drop box in the dwelling in which they they reside and run their church from. So literally, he created this drop box. So you pull open the door, a baby goes in, the bell gets rung when the door closes, and then this wonderful family um, and the church, I, I think, raises them and takes care of these babies until you know they have homes wow well i know even at the top of this interview you said you were lucky enough to be placed on a doorstep Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that you don't want to think about you know is like what if a different decision was made and i know that those things do happen it would be foolish to think they don't today because it's such an overwhelming part of you know if if a baby isn't Maybe I don't want to say not wanted because that's a different thing, but not able to mm-hmm. be cared for. I right. Mean, what a stressful time for those people who had to put you in that situation or any baby in that situation. Wow. Did you know we've released a shop where you can support Frendo? Check out hellofrendo.com and explore. That's H E L L O. F-R-I-E-N-D-O dot com and shop mugs, shirts, stickers, hoodies, and more. We're constantly adding new goodies for you. Your purchase directly supports the show and the work involved in creating it for your ears. So thank you. Check out hellofriendo.com. All right, back to the show. We've talked about the identity. We've talked about the process of adoption, the parenting part of it. Like there's so many, you know, it does kind of filter in. It's who you are. It's part of your story. Do you think that it has 
sort of shaped your direction as to what you do for work, for your line of work? Big time, big time, big time. I think like even going back to middle school, I was like spearheading all these campaigns and, you know, I feel like in Michigan, there was some water issues. So we fundraised money and collected water and shipped it there. Like who ships bottles of water? But anyway, (laughs) at the time it made sense. Um, So I always remember feeling this draw towards helping other people. And then come high school, I still did a lot while I was also kind of rebelling, but I still tried to help other people. And I remember talking to one of my guidance counselors who was great. And she said, yeah, like, I feel like you're really, you know, really a good fit for social work. And I was like, okay, I feel like I know what that is. And so we explored it. And then I just always felt drawn towards going through, you know, into social work. It's funny. My family is very business oriented. And I am not. I am, but I'm not. I'm like the feeling businessy, but not numbers crunching. You know, that's not my personality. So at one point, I think my dad was like, do you you think that that's what you want to do? I'm like, dad, it's my calling. I know this is what I'm going to do. And I think from grade nine or 10, I have always known that this was the path that I would take. You know, it's, it's kind of poetic, actually. You know, you think about here you were sort of not having all the pieces to your early, early start and helping people piece together their, you know, their existence now. It's quite beautiful, actually. Um, you know, for families who are perhaps in a similar situation, but right now where they have adopted children, either internationally or not, um, are there things like that are just good to know? tips for families to help support children. Because one thing I notice is like, um, speaking with people in my life is like, they do have adopted children and they, after doing some courses or reading some things, see symptoms, things happening that would demonstrate, ah, we have an issue. Like we should be talking about this, but the child is like hands off. No, and I sort of see it like they probably don't want to hurt mom and dad by saying mm-hmm. anything wrong. Like there's, it seems very layered. So I'm wondering like any good life advice for people listening? I think that for one is have the conversations. Um, I mean, obviously in, in circumstances such as that could be similar to mine, I think it's important to acknowledge the difference and talk about that you know, have an ongoing dialogue. It doesn't have to be like, Johnny, we have to sit down and talk about this right now. It's so important. But it's about opening up that space to have those conversations and going back to that um, so that they know that, hey, I feel like I'm having an identity crisis, mom. Like, I need to talk to you. Can we talk about this? Or, hey, I feel like I want to try and search for my birth family do you think that that's okay? Is this something that you, as my mom and dad now can support me in doing? Explore those conversations, acknowledge that they're going to be uncomfortable and hard at times because they are, but any conversation with your child is going to be awkward at times because you got to talk to them about sex. So talk to them about adoption, right? Um, Make it kind of a habit and incorporate that um, and give them that space. So, you know, drop the crumb here to say, okay, here, we're we're open and then we're going to wait for you to come to us. Don't feel like they can or don't want to offend or to hurt you. And I think that that's another thing too, is that as the adoptive parent, try not to personalize it. Mm. Right? Because... You know, kids kids can be mean and, you know, especially in preteen, teenage years, like, you're not my mom. I hate you. Kids can say really mean things because behind that statement, there is that abandonment wound. There is that grief and loss. There is that who the heck am I and where in this world out of the billions of people do I actually fit and belong And it's not even to say that you as your, as the parent has done a terrible job. 
it's just that in their mind, in their worldview, they're trying to figure themselves out. And, you know, so instead of trying to fight or resist or to hide it, be a part of that and nurture that so that they don't go through the crazy rebellion things that I did, or at least it's a bit more, you know, tame. Um, and that they can sort through those wounds and that that grief may be a bit more in a finessed, supported way where they are connected. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, that's such good parenting advice to not personalize it because I feel like that's where we go wrong. We take every, like, you know, it hurts us when we feel wounded by words or actions. Um, but there is so much power in it's right. Just knowing like that this is a topic that is not off limits and that when you're ready, I'm good. Like, mm-hmm. which might not be now, which might not be next month because you're like, I've seen other stories of folks in my life where it was an off limit subject matter and there was some serious rebellion and there is some serious work, right. That like needs to happen even now. Cause it's, you know, like you said, you, you noticed in certain relationships, like, Oh, that behavior, I know where that's coming from, or I know why I'm doing that thing. Um, it's just so powerful to feel supported and validated. I think that's wonderful advice. Well, Gary, and this was such a lovely conversation. I thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I feel like we could go on for days. So. I know. I might have to have you back. There's a whole other side to your story, you guys. Oh, oh um, my. <laughs> done. So you mentioned that you do work with people. So where can people find you? So we are on Instagram at co.associatestherapy. And I also have a website. um, It's www.coassociatesmilton.com. So search us up. You can always send me a, a DM or an email or give me a call if you have any questions. I love that. Well, you guys have already seen how easy it is to talk to Gary. And so check her out. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. It's been a blast. Welcome to the Dean portion of the podcast, Dean and Amanda. Friendos. It's the Dean portion of the podcast. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, hi. Welcome. Hello, Marion. What a wonderful interview that I had with her. It was very eye-opening. Wasn't it? Doesn't it just like when you hear those stories, you know, almost like, I, I don't know where I came from. I was just left on a doorstep to, you know, becoming a therapist now. And what a journey. Wow. Oh, yeah. And you know, it's interesting, like when you are interviewing someone whose experience is so vastly different than your own, I found myself like, can I ask this question? Can I ask that question? I don't know, but I'm so curious. But because it's just something that's so completely different than my experience growing up. Well, when you say that, can I ask this question? Can I ask this question? You know, when you're like, I'll take my situation. I was just brought up in like a, you know, uh, Catholic six kids and a dad and a mom and a little house and mom and dad worked and you know I never I never met anyone that was adopted or I you know you live kind of a sheltered life and then you look at somebody like that and they just you know like wow it blows your mind and yeah you do know you kind of think yeah can I even talk about it it's just so vastly different from my experience not for the you know for obvious reasons absolutely There's been so much pain that's been happening in the Asian American communities. I mean, we both see the news. We both seen some of the devastation that's been happening and the awareness that's being brought about right now, which is so important. And so being two white people who are not part of the Asian American community, you know, there isn't much that you and I can really talk about in that sense. But one thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, you and I have both lived in Asian communities around the world. And so Mm. I thought maybe we could talk about a little bit about your time in Korea and what that was like for you, because that was a huge part of both of our lives when you worked for Korean Air and were commuting and coming back to visit me and such in Canada. So what was, what was that like for you, that shift? And maybe it's even worth bringing it back. Like you went to Asia first time was um, in Taipei. And so you were in Taiwan Mm -hmm. and then you spent some time in 
Shanghai. Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And then you spent some time in Korea. So mm-hmm. what was that experience like? Jeez. Like from what perspective? Just like the initial going Shock, there? Shock, yeah. Arriving, new culture. I mean, I wouldn't say it's that different. I mean, the first time you go to these places, it's just, you know, the smell of it, the 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 uh, weather, humidity, the, the people, the way people behave, you know, um, like, for instance, like China's very loud. You know, it's a very loud place, uh, whereas Korea is very quiet. You know, it's impolite to be uh, uh, allowed and you walk through uh, you walk through a uh, a market or something like that. And it's just very silent. Everybody is very, you know conscious of how much noise they're making so really i didn't yeah. know that i i never went to korea like i visited you in taipei i went to hong kong but i didn't spend any other time in in china um but yeah i definitely didn't make it to korea so that's so interesting yeah well korea is kind of an older place uh the culture is very different from what you might expect from well it's korean right it's a different country when you talk about Asia, I mean, you're going right across the landmass, right, to uh, Kazakhstan and in that area. But when you're talking about Eastern Asia, it's like, okay, well, where are you talking about? The Philippines is different than Korea, and then you know, China is different than different than Mongolia, and so I mean, so so to answer your question, I think going there was just it's number one. It's a lesson in atmosphere. And number two, it is a lesson in culture. So, you know, atmosphere, like what you're eating, what you're seeing, what you're smelling, and then, you know, culture, uh, what's impolite and not, you know, not really like accepted and what's what you do, what's polite. And you'll find that, you know, you quickly adapt to a very strict code of behavior. Um. For instance, like when we were at Korean Air, we were doing training, we would go eat in the cafeteria and you don't drink anything until after your meal. So you would go through and and get your food, sit down. And the other thing that's very polite is, or it doesn't matter, is you pick off other people's plates. And that well, was that's like, new. Yeah, I was like, okay, well, that's cool. But it's just things that are done. And then gradually, you know, you you fall into it. And Korean Air and Korean was a, a very interesting place because it's hundreds of cultures from people, pilots from different places and management and all that stuff. So it's definitely have a Korean culture aspect into it. But it also is very um, multicultural, like for the workforce and whatnot. They have flight attendants even who are Russian you know, the working there. So yeah, it was cool. I liked it. It was fun. One thing she brought up was a story when she was on a subway, I think. And she was with her then husband who was Caucasian and her being South Korean. Um, You know, there's that assumption that a local woman made that she was potentially involved in some nefarious shenanigans with this man, that she was a local because of based on how she looked. It was just really interesting. Like that. Them not accepting the husband. Well, not accepting her behavior or her perceived behavior. Oh, for sure. Right? I mean, so, you know, Korea is not a very big country, with, but it has very strong traditions and, and, uh, and a history. You know, um, uh, the Korean War, uh, I flew with a guy that, uh, j- just, to, uh, just to kind of give you an idea, this older fella, when we were, we were taking the bus from Incheon into the Gimpo airport, to do a flight out of there, which we usually didn't do. And as we were driving from Incheon to, you know, across, not the big bridge, but before the big bridge was built, all the tidal areas, you know, all the bridges. And the tide goes out really, really far there. And he was, he was, uh, you know, oh, you know, I have a story and, you know, it takes, I just met him, so whatever. So we got in the flight deck and, I can't remember where we were going, and he was, I think, Anchorage or somewhere else or Singapore. No, I think it was Anchorage. And in any case, he started talking about when he was a boy and them hiding from um, the Chinese soldiers 
and and all the fighting actually all the soldiers they were hiding from and they would hide in these islands and there's many many islands around there and at night they would crawl onto the mud and find crabs to eat and come back up and they would lay on the in the grass all day and they would fill their bellies with grass and and with with crab you know raw because they didn't want to light a fire and i was just looking at this guy and this is somebody that survived this and now he's sitting beside me and it's just like wow so what i'm trying to say is that compared to my life that guy's seen a lot of hardship so maybe that tempers like your you know certain beliefs and whatnot so yeah i mean when he sees something different happen in his culture like you know interracial marriaging or marriage marriaging interracial marriages and whatnot maybe it's not accepted you know but the thing is it's not that type of racism isn't exclusive to korea you could go to small towns around here and bring a you know a a, a, a you know a mate that's mm-hmm. of a different culture and there would certainly be some racism i mean it just seems to happen but it's it's evolving, but very, very slowly. Slowly, yeah. When I was in Korea uh, and other places, you're in their culture. You do do as the Romans do. That's it. But also, you know, um, for like for instance, I can remember my very first flight, uh, my my line check. I went from Seoul to Hong Kong, and and um, the captain I was flying with a very senior guy. He was checking me out, and we, we went. F- we're about, you know, we just got level. We're level for about 15 minutes. And he goes, can I ask you a question? I'm like, oh, here we go with the 747 questions. And he goes, he pulls out a book and it's an English, uh, you know, he's learning English. And the way I talk, I'm the last person to be teaching anyone English. <laughs> but we but we spoke, he, he was asking questions, you know, and we were talking back and forth. And and he goes, you know, um, and uh, because we they gave us a, a course on speaking Korean and Hangul, uh, writing Korean, so we could, you know, read the signs. It's quite a, a good system. and But they're also open to learning as well. So it's kind of like you're going to be in a society, you're always going to find uh, uh, different cultures. And it's kind of like a, a learn to appreciate the things that appeal to you. You right. Know, you don't have to force yourself into eating the cuisine and learning the language and all that stuff, but you can look at that and go, "Oh, that's great. You do this like this and, mm-hmm. you know." I remember when we first moved to Malaysia, like there was I can't remember this person we were speaking with, but there's this element of when you are in a new place, you observe and respect and adapt mostly to all of the new cultures and experiences and traditions Mm -hmm. but then also to preserve your heritage you maintain elements of yourself right right, while you're abroad and so you know i would hope the same for people that spend time in canada that they embrace and learn and adapt and also maintain and preserve their culture and their traditions right and there's this it's a delicate balance you don't last very long um I've seen a number of pilots go through that in 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 Taiwan and China and Korea, uh, in Malaysia, and you don't last very long if you just try to, like I'm going to get on board and I'm going to learn the language and all this stuff like this. Yeah, okay, but you know you can't change who you are, and you're not really impressing anyone. Like I don't, I never found a situation like in some situations. I mean, after a flight. Uh, you know, I would say, uh, uh, like, thank you very much. You did a great job, you know, and, and that was enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole flight, I never spoke a Korean word. Uh, but they don't almost like, they're like, oh, you tried. Yeah. So you try things and that goes for any culture in any direction, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. try stuff. If people ask you, show them, yeah. you know, and in that way, you don't feel like it's forced upon you and and you know people will learn at their own rate and i think that's the thing is that you know people get threatened because they think it's some kind of test or something like oh these 
you know, whatever culture moved across the street. Now what? We're going to have to learn this language. It's such a it's backwards like, way of looking at it. What are you talking about? You, most of us in North America came from somewhere else. Exactly. Except for the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So wh- what are you talking about? We're all foreigners. There's just so much. When you delve into something in someone's culture, it's like, oh, it's just a just a big uh, open or it's just a big space with so much in it, you know? That can be gained rather than... Yeah, rather or, than or resist. Or at very least be interesting. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, it was so nice to hear Garion's story today. And Wasn't it? It's so, it's just so cool to hear how she came from where she came from. And, and I like to hear, like, when you hear someone, you know, talk about their culture and talk about where they came from, and uh, uh, it really puts a human side to it. And uh, anyway, I appreciate that. That's cool. Yeah. Everybody has a story, right? Everyone and we has can't a story. assume that we know what somebody's, you know, the path they've walked. So I really. Yeah, which is the basis of the whole friendle thing. Everybody exactly. wants to hear. We want, let's learn about each other for a change. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting, Dean. Yeah, it's good. I like chatting. And thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you in our next episode. Bye bye. Friendo Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Amanda Muse. Music on this episode is written by Chris Bevins and Mike Payne, performed and produced by MP Real Glow. If you'd like to help support the growth of Friendo Podcast, you can do so by leaving a positive review, sharing the podcast with your friends and community, and supporting the shop at hellofriendo.com. Find us on Instagram at shophellofriendo. And thank you for listening. And remember, be your own bird. <laughs>